Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. For all you elk hunters out there, Chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Weekend Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. In an incident that has never occurred before, and I'm confident will never occur again, a pygmy hippopotamus attacked and killed an antelope at a Grand Rapids Zoo in Michigan. Curators for the John Ball Zoo were excited to introduce the public to two new pygmy hippos during the zoo's Hippopalooza event on June 2nd. The new enclosure was set to house the hippos alongside two European white storks and a type of swamp-dwelling antelope from Central Africa called a Sitatunga. Disclaimer, all these animals have names because this is a zoo. It's hard to remain hip-hop anonymous when you are the main attraction. The Sitatunga, whose name was Chopper, had already met the offending hippo through a mesh barrier. Zoo officials apparently didn't observe any aggressive behavior between Chopper and the hippo, whose name is Jahari. Unfortunately for Chopper, Jahari was wearing his poker face, because as soon as the animals were allowed to be in the same enclosure, the hippo took out the antelope. Interesting line from the original article, staff attempted to resuscitate Chopper, the Sitatunga, but you know what they say, once you get bit by a pygmy hippo, there's no going back. Anyway, it's unclear what motivated Jahari to go after his fellow zoo resident. The San Diego Zoo says that little is known about the behavior of pygmy hippos in their native habitat, but most sources I've read report that the animals are shy and reclusive. Full-size hippos are known for being aggressive, but their smaller cousins are not. In fact, over on the Meat Eater podcast, we just had a really great chat with a couple of professional hunters who operate in Tanzania, According to those fellas, one would go straight to hell for killing something as cute as a pygmy hippo. Perhaps Zahari was working on his rep. You know, life on the inside. Kick someone's ass the first day kind of thing. You know, jokes aside, 
I just like this story for the fact that I'm positive everyone at the zoo did their level best to make sure these two would hit it off. But humans observing animals will not always produce the correct conclusion. For all we know, despite the lack of barred fangs or raised hackles or twitching tails or laid-back ears, those two could have been talking Royal Rumble-type smack through the fence the entire time. Thanks to Mike Ortiz for sending us that story. This week, we've got bears, legislation, and wolves, plus so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was great. The lady and I hitched up the camper and headed out for one more turkey tour. We hiked a lot of miles and located one talkative bird on public land, which required wading a raging spring runoff swollen river. And as I am the only one who brought waders, Sam got a ride on my shoulders, and then we spooked the bird, and back across the river we went. But we had the roost location. So, after onexing our way around the country, knocking off bits of BLM, state, and forest service ground for the rest of the day, which turned up exactly zero gobbles on public ground, we decided to head back and check out old Tom's roost tree, which was only a couple of hours down the road. Now, the girlfriend's turkey-killing drive ebbed a bit, with the idea of sitting and waiting in the hot evening sun surrounded by ticks for old Thomas's return. So it was up to me to head into the tick-infested river bottom solo. Only one problem. No gun. I had left the shotgun leaning up on the trailer tongue at our last stop. Again, just a couple short hours away. I wish I could say that's the first time I've left a shotgun all by its lonesome. Uh, Not a ton of fun driving back to pick it up. Leaving the turkey potential was tough, but not as bad as just knowing you'd run over a shotgun, possibly with the truck, but definitely with the 5,000-pound camper. Well, when we found it, there were tire tracks on the sling, but everything else appeared in working condition. It was way too late to turn back for the Tom, so we had a lovely camp out surrounded by a giant eastern Montana sunset and a prolific June bug hatch. Junebug is a general name for a small reddish beetle that hatches at night, kind of spring through the summer months. They are chafers, which is Greek for leaf eater, and more importantly, Jim Carrey's line and Dumb and Dumber. No thanks, swallowed a big Junebug coming over the past, remember that one? Well, not likely, okay? Unless, of course, he was referencing a cock chafer beetle, which I'm sure you can guess is more of a European thing, also known as a May beetle. It's larger than the June bug, which maxes out at 20 millimeters. So, sorry to ruin a classic film for you all. You can't do that. Can't do. Cannot. Stamp it. Can't do. Double stamp it. No erases. Cannot. Triple stamp it. No erases. Touch blue. Make it through. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. You can't triple stamp a double stamp. Lord, you can't triple stamp a double stamp. Anyway, another fantastic example of dry, desolate prairies magically springing to life. I'm sure that hatch would have made for some happy turkeys, but they are not nocturnal. Moving on to the bear desk. A brown bear in Italy is at the center of a legal battle after prosecutors say it attacked and killed a jogger earlier this year. Thanks to listener Johanna Rosenbaum for sending this one in. The incident occurred during the first week of April in a region of northern Italy known as Trentino Alto Adige, or Adige, maybe. 26-year-old Andrea Poppy was running in the Alps when he was attacked by what local authorities said was a 17-year-old female bear who had attacked a father and daughter in 2020. The bear, who goes by the name JJ4, I'm sure not her given name, was set to be euthanized until animal rights activists sued. A court ordered that the bear not be killed and it was instead fitted with a GPS collar and tracked. 
Unfortunately, the batteries on the collar ran out and were never replaced. Devil's in the details in those court orders, I guess. Prosecutors say that the DNA found at this latest crime scene matches DNA from JJ4, but animal rights activists are once again calling for the bear's release. They say the DNA collection methods were faulty and that the bite marks on the victim look more like a male bear than a female bear. To which I would respond, really? They also said the autopsy showed, quote, a protracted attempt by the bear to distance and dissuade the victim. Well, yeah, I guarantee the victim's not going to do it again. And I have not been able to find an explanation for how an autopsy could indicate that a bear was trying to run away. JJ4 was captured again after this latest incident and is being held in what CBS News is calling a high-security enclosure. No word yet on what the Pygmy Hippo Gang thinks about this newest inmate, but if I was that bear, I'd watch my back. Bears might be able to get away with murder in Italy, but things are a little different here in the U.S. Listener Casey Stephenson wrote in to tell me about an adolescent black bear that was shot in southeast Washington for not doing much more than walking where it shouldn't. Casey is a brewer at the Bale Breaker Brewing Company in Moxie. This is like in the greater Yakima region, okay? He tells me that the local sheriff's deputy shot the bear from the parking lot of the brewery because he was afraid it would pose a threat to the patrons in the tasting room. If you've seen the local media coverage of this incident, you might have the wrong idea about the threat this bear posed. For one thing, the segment on KIMA identifies the bear as a brown bear and shows a picture of a big old grizzly. But the video from the incident clearly shows a young, young black bear. Its fur is brown, which is true of lots of black bears and grizzly bears, but this is a black bear. And it wasn't charging or huffing like a grizz or, you know, ticked off black bear. It also looked about three times smaller than uh, an unattended adolescent grizzly bear. How's that? The news anchor says that the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife made the call to kill the bear, even though it was the sheriff's deputy who pulled the trigger. Casey tells me that while this area is surrounded by wildlife, it's uncommon to see big game within city limits. Wildlife officials haven't said whether they believe this bear had rabies or was acting strangely for some other reason, but it sounds like they didn't want it hanging around businesses and neighborhoods before finding out. Casey also mentioned that he's seen an uptick in the number of bears in the state since they canceled their spring bear season a few years ago. That's a whole saga we won't get into now, but it brings up another tricky and important question. Does bear hunting reduce conflict between humans and bears? Other states like New Jersey are seeing an uptick in bear sightings and attacks, and many, including the New Jersey governor, have suggested a limited bear hunt to help reduce the frequency of those incidents. Hunters kill bears, the theory goes, which means fewer bears on the landscape, which, you know, certainly adds up. Fewer bears on the landscape means fewer bears in neighborhoods and trash cans, which means fewer conflicts with humans. There is some data to back up this theory. In 2020, a group of researchers published a peer-reviewed study that found that hunting does decrease human-bear conflicts as long as the study accounts for population size. Previous studies had come to mixed conclusions because they didn't factor in the bear population in the study area. The bear population might be increasing as hunter harvest increases, which leads to higher conflicts and higher harvests at the same time. This study looked at bear population, hunter harvest, and complaint data in Minnesota between 1981 and 2019. Researchers found that the number of complaints were influenced by several factors, including a Minnesota Department of Natural Resources campaign to encourage residents to reduce bear conflicts by securing their garbage. 
Complaints were also influenced by the availability of natural food sources, since bears that can find food in the woods are less likely to raid the local garbage dump. Hunting also played a role in significantly reducing the number of bear-related complaints over the study period. Increased bear harvest beginning in the 1980s resulted in a leveling off of the population by the 1990s and an even sharper decline through 2007. Along with limiting the overall population, researchers hypothesize that hunters end up targeting potential problem bears that are attracted to bait. They also target mature females during times when natural foods aren't available because females need more calories to grow and raise cubs. The researchers in this study didn't speculate on which of these three factors, hunting, public education, and natural foods, are most important for reducing conflicts, but they do conclude that the black bear population is directly associated with the number of complaints and that hunting is one tool of many to reduce the frequencies of those conflicts. So Casey could be right. While the black bear population in Washington is dependent on several other factors besides hunting, it is reasonable to assume that limiting hunter harvest will result in an increased population that has the potential to produce more human bear conflict. It's not a simple one-to-one association, but it's not rocket science to say if you kill a bunch of bears, there's going to be fewer bears to cause trouble. Now, I do have to talk about these other studies out there for good reason, because it's all good science. If you take like a park population, okay, Yellowstone National Park, where there's tons of education on bear-proof containers, storing food in a wise fashion, not tempting bears into becoming bad bears, then you have decreased conflict, even though you have high bear populations intermixed with high human populations. Now, where conflicts really increase is on the fringes of these zones, where the bear populations are expanding into areas that don't have that history of bear-safe education, right? They don't have bear-proof trash containers, dumpsters, chicken coops, etc., And then you have bears that can, for generations, create more problem bears because they do teach their young how to find food. And if they're finding food in dumpsters, that's what they're going to teach their young to do. So there are some ideas that an increased harvest quota in these areas of population expansion are going to limit or decrease human bear conflict. And as we've talked about before, right, the way this works is mom weans the cubs off, chases the cubs off, and then those cubs who have been following mom around, learning as much as they have, they're out there on their own, and those are the ones that a lot of times are causing conflict. On the opposite end of the scale, you have your super old bears who may have never been problem bears, but they're literally halfway blind and toothless and they're desperate for food, and they're going to make bad decisions that they've gone their entire life not making. Now, how can hunters specifically target those bears? Be very, very difficult. Like I said, a bunch more studies out there that I got to read up on. I got a pile of them sitting on my desk from awesome friends at fish and game agencies all across the country. So I'll get back with a little more concise answer for you there, Casey. Speaking of bear-human conflicts, A cyclist from North Vancouver learned the hard way that, contrary to most illustrated children's books, bears and bicycles don't mix. Thanks to everyone who sent me this story. 30-year-old Kevin Milner told the media outlet North Shore News that he was riding his bike down a steep hill when he turned a corner and saw a black bear on the road. 
he decided to ride around the bear rather than slam on the brakes, but that same moment, the bear also decided to get out of Dodge. Milner ran into the bear's shoulder blade and went head over heels. Quote, I did a flip over him, I pretty much kissed the bear, and then I guess I flew through the air, said Milner. The cyclist ended up lying on the side of the road. He couldn't walk, was spitting blood, and was afraid he had internal injuries. Eventually, someone with an e-bike came along, and he helped Milner get to the entrance of the forest, where an ambulance picked him up and took him into the hospital. He was diagnosed with a fractured scapula, cardiac contusion, bruised ribs, road rash, and numbness. For its part, the bear seemed to take it all in stride. The Bruins stayed in the area, eating grass, and, quote, carried on with its day. Those bears are built like a truck, the cyclist said. That's the uh, exact situation that uh, made me quit taking my mountain bike to British Columbia. I used to ride all the logging roads in between hunters and camp, and uh, I just knew, knew I was going to T-bone a sow grizzly one of these days. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? Me neither. Like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast. So get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions for all you elk hunters out there chasing turkeys is basically the same thing i know the reaction you just gave me but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on x the hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground but i use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the legislative desk. 
The Michigan legislature is considering three bills that would impose additional requirements on inland fishing and hunting guides to operate in the state. Under current law, only fishing guides on the Great Lakes are required to pay a fee and undergo additional training to guide clients. Hunting guides must obtain a permit to operate on state land, but that permit is free and does not require training. Under Senate Bills 103, 104, and 105, hunting and fishing guides would need to be certified in first aid and CPR and have no felony convictions or violations of certain state wildlife conservation and environmental laws on their record. They would need to pay a fee of $150 every three years as well as purchase a basic hunting or fishing license. They would also be required to report harvest data. Advocates, which include outdoor groups like the Michigan United Conservation Club, argue that these requirements will keep bad actors from profiting off of unsuspecting clients and posing as legitimate guides. They also say the reporting requirements will provide valuable data to wildlife biologists. Opponents say the new regulations are unnecessary and impose an undue burden on commercial guides. If you'd like to weigh in, get in touch with your Michigan state senators. Staying in the upper Midwest, The Minnesota legislature just passed a giant spending bill aimed at increasing funding for conservation, hunting, and fishing. It's being hailed as a jumbo-sized outdoor bill that will bring transformational and truly historic investment in wildlife habitat and outdoor recreation. The bill will send $308 million in new operating money to the DNR spread over the next two fiscal years. In addition, the agency will receive more than $116.6 million in direct cash from a $1.3 billion capital investment plan. It also makes some policy changes such as declaring a moratorium on new deer farms, allowing for crossbow use regardless of a hunter's age, denies the attempt to outlaw the hunting of wolves, and allowing for some two-line fishing. The bill passed the legislature and is headed for the desk of Governor Tim Waltz, For a full rundown of everything this bill does, check out the story published last week in the Star Tribune. I'll post a link on the meateater.com forward slash cal. In Vermont, the Fish and Wildlife Department is asking for public input on rules related to coyote hunting and wildlife trapping. Back in 2022, the legislature mandated that the department issue new rules to make trapping more, quote, humane and ban the hunting of coyotes with dogs. Now the department has finalized those rules, and Vermonters will have a chance to weigh in. The agency plans to hold public hearings on June 20th in Rutland, on June 21 in Montpellier, and virtually online on June 22nd through Microsoft Teams. I'd encourage you to look up the rules for yourself before weighing in, but here are the spark notes. The trapping rules impose some additional restrictions on the type of bait used in body-gripping traps and mandate certain setback requirements from roads and trails. The coyote hunting rules would ban coyote hunting with dogs except in the case of property protection, but it would also hand out 100 licenses to hunt coyotes with dogs every year and impose annual spring and fall seasons on the activity. Coyote hunting without dogs would still be allowed year-round. In addition to the public hearings, people who are interested in sharing comments can send them to anr.fwpublickcomment at vermont.gov from May 17th through June 30th with the subject line Trapping and Coyote Regulations. Another quick note for you. If you want to tune in with your uh, smartphone, Microsoft Teams does not let you bypass downloading the stupid app. So that's gotten me several times. Download the app ahead of time. California has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation but the legislature is considering several bills that would impose additional restrictions. One of those bills, 
AB 28 would impose an 11% tax on all firearms and ammunition sold in the state. The money generated from this tax would be deposited in the Gun Violence Prevention, Healing, and Recovery Fund, which the bill would establish in the state treasury. This fund would be used to pay for violence intervention programs, school mental health programs, gun confiscation programs, and firearms education. Interestingly, the bill's authors claim that this new tax on guns and ammo is analogous to the Pittman-Robertson's excise tax used to fund conservation. Quote, This act will similarly place a reasonable surtax on firearm and ammunition industry members profiting from the sale of firearms and ammunition in order to generate sustained revenue for programs that are designed to remediate the devastating effects these products cause families and communities across the state. Of course, an analogy can be more or less appropriate. The Pittman-Robertson tax is used to fund wildlife conservation because most gun owners hunt and fish. This user-pays model is at the heart of our conservation system here in North America. If California legislators actually wanted to model this bill after Pittman-Robertson, they go after the users of guns in crimes, i.e. criminals who kill and wound people with guns. Instead, the bill assumes that law-abiding gun owners are somehow implicated or complicit in the crimes of others. This bill has been passed by two committees in the California Assembly and is headed to the full assembly for a vote. Because it imposes a new tax, it will require yes votes from two-thirds of the assembly before it moves over to the Senate. Moving on to the wolf desk. Colorado's plan to reintroduce wolves is off to a rocky start. The plan, which you can learn more about in episode 191, calls for 30 to 50 wolves to be introduced in the northwestern part of the state over the next three to five years. Even though wolves have already been documented in Colorado, the plan suggests that Colorado Parks and Wildlife will import wolves from states like Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. But that's easier said than done. Earlier this month, Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon flatly refused to send any of his state's wolves to Colorado. Wyoming has population goals for its own management plan, and Gordon doesn't want to jeopardize those objectives to help the centennial state. Plus, he pointed out that some of those wolves might try to migrate back to their home ranges, which would be dangerous to both canines and humans. This week, the Cowboy State Daily reported that Montana and Idaho are also lukewarm on Colorado's wolf request. Any talk about sending Montana wolves to Colorado remains purely theoretical, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks spokesman Greg Lemon told the outlet. Quote, we are not in any active negotiations to translocate any wolves from Montana to any other state. Spokespeople for Montana, Governor Greg Gianforte and Idaho Governor Brad Little, also said that they haven't been in contact with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The Colorado agency says that they've had, quote, informal conversations with their counterparts in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, but the clock is ticking. The plan calls for wolf paws to hit the ground at the end of this year, and last I checked, the year is almost halfway over. We'll see if those other northern rocky states will agree to part with some of their wolves, or if they'll leave Colorado howling at the moon. Moving on to the science desk. A new study published in the journal Science found that humans are far more dangerous to bobcats and coyotes than wolves and mountain lions. Researchers used GPS collar data from the four predator species and found that when bobcats and coyotes felt threatened by wolves and mountain lions, they moved closer to human habitations to escape. But that was usually a bad idea. The study concluded that the smaller predators were killed more than three times as often by humans than by wolves and cougars. 
The researchers were trying to figure out what kind of impact the growing wolf population in Washington state is having on meso predators. This study suggests that while larger predators do suppress coyote and bobcat populations, they do so not by killing the smaller animals, but by pushing them closer to roads and towns. At two sites in rural areas, researchers tracked 22 wolves, 60 cougars, 35 coyotes, and 37 bobcats from the winter of 2017 to the summer of 2022. During that time, 19 coyotes and 13 bobcats died, 14 coyotes and 11 bobcats were killed by humans, while only 5 coyotes and 3 bobcats were killed by other predators. All of those coyotes and bobcats except one were either shot or trapped by humans. In other words, if you're a coyote or a bobcat in rural Washington, you'll have better luck with the wolves than with the humans. All the meso predators in Colorado should be taking notes. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. On top of that, if you're cruising the logging roads like I am looking for bears and turkeys, you may have found yourself in need of a chainsaw. Maybe one that doesn't sound uh, like you're uh, falling timber out of commercial operations. A sneaky little saw, like uh, an MSA 220, let's say. Clean, quiet, battery-powered chainsaw. Where do you get one? Check out www.steeldealers.com to find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they're not going to try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks, sent right to your door visit mauinuivenison.com that's m-a-u-i-n-u-i venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order